rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listed, uh, listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, uh, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the land, to the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed, transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oaths that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out among us, upon us. And because we have sinned against him, he has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all the calamities have come upon us. And yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, returning, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamities and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now our Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, has made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your, your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Verse 20. While I was speaking, Daniel, I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of the, my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, and you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay, this is where it gets weird. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy people. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, 
But in a troubled time, and after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree end and is poured out on the desolate. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask for understanding, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand your word. Some of it is difficult, Lord. This whole book has been challenging, but Lord, you have helped us to understand. You have brought to our hearts and our minds things that we need to understand, things that we need to pray about, things we need to act on. And we thank you for that, Lord. Please continue in that. Lord, we pray for, there's a lot of things going on in our midst. And um, Lord, we ask, Lord, that your name would be praised through some things that are going on in our church. We've got uh, relationships, Lord, that are, that are having difficult times. And we, we ask, Lord, that mercy and love and humility would be brought into these relationships, Lord. Lord, that your name, for your name's sake, Lord, may people look to these relationships and glorify your name. That's what Daniel's praying about. He's praying for his people, and his people ha- have been wicked, and they have sinned against you, and he's confessing them to, to you, Lord, and he's asking for forgiveness and Lord, we ask that people, Lord, in our church, in our midst, Lord, would look to you for forgiveness, that they would confess their sins, they would humble themselves and look to Christ. Lord, we pray for Pastor Joe here at St. Mark's who, is, who found out recently, Lord, that he has cancer. And Lord, we, uh, we've gotten to know Joe, we've gotten to know his, his family and his wife, and they serve faithfully here, Lord, and we ask, Lord, that you would heal him, Lord, if that is your will, Lord, that you would bring healing to his body, but also, Lord, that you would give him perseverance through this, you would give him strength through this, you give his wife strength, and Lord, that for Joe, if maybe, maybe his faith has been a bit rocked, maybe that last several years, maybe he hasn't looked to you the way that he should, Lord, that he would look to you that he would call out your name, that he would confess his sins, that he would humble his heart to you, Lord, and look to you, Lord, to give him strength. Lord, we pray for other things going on. We pray for the Melvins who are traveling, Lord. We pray that they have a wonderful time of rest and time together, Lord, and I pray that you would bring them back safely. We pray for students who are on their way in the next few weeks to, 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 to move into their apartments or start school at USI for the first time. Lord, we pray for them, pray for their families. Pray for those who are believers, that they would get connected to Redeemer, they would get connected to a local church. Lord, we pray for those who are not believers who are coming to USI. May this be the, the change, the remarkable change of their life, where they would come to USI and they would get to know Christians and that, that Lord, that you would find them and they would come to know their Savior and Lord. We pray that that would happen. Lord, we pray for this church as we're very close to USI. We're close to other means of ministry. Lord, I pray that you would use us. And Lord, we, we pray for First Southern Baptist Church. We pray for Pastor Dave. We pray for Jackson. We pray for Reggie, Lord. And we pray for their leadership, their deacons. Lord, we pray um, for the preaching of the word today and tonight. We pray for their members. 
pray for those who are just casually going, where we pray, Lord, that, that you would use that church to reach not just those who are, are older, those who, are, who have families, Lord, but that there would be a young generation raised up at that church. That they would see First Southern carry on for 50, 100 more years, Lord, that you would do amazing work through that church. And they're right next to Harrison High School, Lord. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We pray that you would, again, use us and speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I'll be honest. This, um, my dad's probably not listening. He's on a flight to Singapore right now. That, uh, this chapter, that passage at the end, has been a, a big fight, big battle between me and my dad on disagreements on what that particular passage means. So, um, so yeah, if my father listens to this, he's probably going to disagree with me. We'll probably have to talk about it. That'll be okay. Um, so um, I want to talk about prayer. I mean, prayer is a pretty uh, uh, important um, part of this chapter. And we see most of this chapter, chapter is taken up by a prayer. So what is prayer? Um, I mean, that sounds like a, maybe a pretty simple question. Oh, well, prayer is prayer. <laughs> you know, you... Praying is praying. Like, what, 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 what kind of seems like a foolish definition to ask. But if you've been across the world, if you've been to other countries, you've been to places where Christianity is not the prominent religion of the people, you realize that people pray very differently, right? I mean, we, went, we just got back from Nepal, and you have Buddhists who pray with the prayer wheels, and they're spinning the wheels. And what that does is basically it's, it's flinging out prayers for compassion and kindness into the atmosphere to relieve suffering and release kindness to the world. That's what they do. They're spinning these wheels. You would think, if you saw this, you'd be like, that's stupid. They're just spinning a wheel. That's doing nothing. That's not prayer. But to a Buddhist, that is prayer. To a Hindu who, uh, who prays for help or good luck uh, uh, or peace to any of the millions of gods that they may worship, they may go to a temple and look at the statue and pray to the statue and hope that that statue will give them luck or peace or help in their trials and their suffering and their persecution. Uh, certain uh, Native American Indians, they, uh, they sing their prayers. They have these songs that they have written about their ancestors and the, the, the mystical uh, spirits that they worship, and they sing their prayers. They sing their poetry and their, their, their legends and their stories. Muslims, they pray five times a day. Well, some pray five times a day. Not all Muslims pray five times a day. They're supposed to pray five times a day. And what they do is they get on a rug that points to Mecca. They get on their knees, and they put their hands, and they go all the way down to the ground. And, they, and you'll, you know when it's time to pray, especially if you're in a Muslim country, because the, 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 there'll be a, a tower, and on that tower is someone speaking into a microphone, and it's the call of prayer. And you can hear it across the entire city if you're in a prominently Muslim country. It wakes you up at five in the morning when you're trying to sleep. But so they pray, and this is kind of how they pray. And so people pray differently. I actually found out that atheists, people who do not believe in God, 30% of atheists say they pray sometimes. I'm not sure who they're praying to, but they're praying. So all cultures communicate to the divine, to the gods, in some way. They, they're, they're yet, we get to find a culture uh, or a group of people that doesn't pray in some way. It seems like prayer is a pretty important activity in the world from the beginning. And so prayer, and, and, and Tim Keller in his book Prayer talks about prayer. He says, with all this in view, we can define prayer as a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. Now all human beings have some knowledge of God available to them at some level, 
They have an indebitable sense that they need something or someone who is on a higher plane and definitely greater than they are. Prayer is seeking to respond and connect to that being and reality, even if it is no more than a calling out into the air for help. That is, I believe, the common denominator of all human prayer. However, because of our definition understands prayer as a response to the knowledge of God, it means that prayer is profoundly altered by the amount and accuracy of that knowledge, of knowledge of God. Uh, John Calvin observed that we all refashion that sense of deity to fit our own interests and desires unless through the Spirit and the Scriptures our view of God is corrected and clarified. Prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through His Word and through His grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with Him. So prayer, now the whole world has been praying, but the problem is, is they don't have full knowledge of God. They don't understand God, and so they're praying to an unknown God, or they're praying to some deity they think is there or might be there, because their knowledge of God is inaccurate, it's incomplete. Now, with God's Word and the Holy Spirit, we pray to the God that is there, with the God that we know, the God who saved us through His Son. So, in this chapter, in Daniel 9, kind of the first point of this is that Daniel's method of prayer. Daniel is really giving us a method of prayer, and it's really uh, impactful. And Martin Luther, a great little story about Martin Luther, he wrote this book called A Simple Way of Prayer. And the story goes that his barber, Peter, was cutting his hair, and he had a question for Dr. Luther. And, and so he asked this question to, to Dr. Martin Luther and, and asked him, how do I pray? He's basically, Peter, the barber, is struggling in his prayer life, and he asked the expert, right, Martin Luther, how to pray. And so Martin Luther says, well, give me a night to think about it, and, and I will give you the answer. And it ended up, the answer ended up becoming this little, little book that you can actually buy on Amazon, this little, little book on the method of prayer. And he says that when you pray... This is, this is what Martin Luther says. He says, never stop, uh, he will never stop attacking us, talking about the evil one, talking about the devil, talking about our flesh is all too ready, willing and able to make us resist the spirit of genuine, genuine prayer. That's why saying out loud the Ten Commandments, the creeds, the words of Jesus will move your heart and you will realize it is time for you to get down on your knees or stand and with folded hands look forward towards heaven and say out loud or think, O Heavenly Father, dear God, I am an unworthy, wretched sinner. I do not deserve to lift my eyes and my hands to heavens and pray. But because you have commanded us to pray and have promised to hear such prayers, and because you have taught us through your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, both in word and in deed, I now come on the basis of your command and obedience to you, I take my stand on your gracious promise, and in the name of my Lord Jesus Christ, I pray with all your holy Christians on earth, as he has taught me, our Father who art in heaven, say the Lord's Prayer completely, word for word, and do the following. So basically he says, pray the Word of God. Pray what God has already provided. Pray these things back to God. This is Martin Luther's answer, his explanation, his teaching to Peter the barber on how to pray. And that's what Daniel does here. He prays the words of God back to him. He prays the promises of God back to God. John Piper writes that if I try to pray for people or events without having the word in front of me guiding my prayers, then several negative things happen. One is that I tend to be very repetitive. I just pray the same things all the time. Another negative thing is that my mind tends to wonder. 
So praying the words of God. And we see that this was what Daniel does. We see that, that he perceived. We see this in verse, um, verse chapter 2 in the first year of his reign. Talking about uh, Darius. I, Daniel, perceived in the books of numbers of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophets. So let's kind of, let's do a little bit of context here. So we're, what has happened, uh, this, is, this is Daniel, this is in the first year of Darius. Darius is not a king of Babylon, he's a king of Persia. But as we remembered from uh, Daniel, uh, that Stan Beringer preached on when, I was, when we were in Nepal, in Daniel chapter 5, uh, that the uh, Babylonian Empire falls that this growing empire, the Persians, has attacked and conquered the Babylonians, that the Babylon had fallen. Um, we even see that in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 through 31, we see that that very night the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So the kingdom of Babylon fell. The Persians and the Medes, Median Empire, came in and, and attacked and conquered the Babylonians. And the Medes and Persian Empire, the realm of the Chaldeans, and, and this is to be interesting, just to kind of do a little sidetrack here, but the Chaldean people is the same people that Abraham came from. He was from the land of the Chaldeans. He was from the city of Ur. This is where Abraham comes from. The, the origin of the father of Israel is in Chaldean, and here's the empire that is ruling over Israel now. Kind of interesting. Today, the, the, the Persian Empire is a nation of Iran. Kind of a, 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 kind of a, a thorn in the side of the United States and the United States allies in the Middle East is Iran. Let's just kind of, kind of back forward to, the, to, this, to this, this time in, in history. This was the Persian Empire. And Daniel, going back to Daniel chapter 6, 1 through 3, he was uh, given, in this new empire, uh, Daniel was given a, a position pretty high in the Persian Empire. He was one of three high officials. It even says that he was distinguished above all the other high officials in the Persian Empire. I mean, Daniel was a pretty significant person. He was very talented. He was very, very smart. He was very good at what he did. And even with a change in power, Daniel was still had a lot of influence in a new empire. And the interesting thing here going on in Daniel 9 is that the Holy Spirit's presence in Daniel's life. That Daniel perceived in the words of the Lord, in the, in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, this significant truth about what God is doing in history, what God had promised before to Daniel's people, to the people of Israel. The Holy Spirit prompts him. The Holy Spirit gives Daniel understanding about God's word. The Holy Spirit leads him to pray. He was one like Psalms 1, chapter 2, one who was meditating on the words of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit illuminated the mind and heart of, of Daniel, and it, and it gave him this understanding. It prompted him to, to, to pray that God's promises, that God's words would be fulfilled. And it's similar to something that we should do, and hence why Martin Luther tells Peter the barber that he should pray the words of God, because you're praying the promises of God, and you're desiring for the fulfillment of God's word in your life and in the lives of the people around you. You want God's word to be fulfilled, so you pray God's word. Romans 10 through 11, where Paul desires for his for his brothers and sisters, his, his, his fellow uh, Hebrews, his fellow Jews, that they would come to know Jesus Christ, their Messiah, Messiah, the Messiah and their Lord. And he, he desires and he prays to God for Israel's salvation. 
And what does the Holy Spirit do? He says in chapter 11, he reminds him of Elijah, how there was a remnant. You know, Elijah was like, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one faithful to you. And God said, actually, you're not the only one. I've kept a remnant of people who are faithful to me. And this passage, this story from the Old Testament reminds Paul that God will not forsake his people. That there will be a remnant just like then. And so the Word of God, God's, that God's, uh, what God did in the past... Paul is reminded of these things by the Holy Spirit. He's illuminated these things. And he, that is the grounding of his prayer that Israel, that his brothers and sisters, his, his fellow citizens of Israel would come and accept Christ Jesus for their salvation. That there is a remnant. There's one, there are those chosen by grace. And so he prompts, the Holy Spirit prompts him to pray. According to the word of the Lord, we see uh, that uh, Daniel in chapter 9, he, he's perceived in the book of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophets that must pass before the end of desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what is going on here? What, what Daniel has done is that he was reading Jeremiah. He was reading Jeremiah 25. And obviously, it wasn't Jeremiah 25 for Daniel. It was just Jeremiah the prophet. And this was part of his prophecy. And he, Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would be judged by God because of their sins, which did happen. Daniel experienced that quite well because he was taken from his home and he was brought to Babylon. Remember we talked about it in Daniel chapter 1. And because of their sin, they were judged by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. And they had to serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Well, as we just read, Babylon has ended. Their empire has fallen. Their kingdom has fallen. So Daniel, being where he is, he's reminded of this passage. He's like, okay, then where is God's fulfillment? When is he going to bring us home? Going back to the Babylonian captivity in 605 B.C., Daniel is taken from his home. In 539 B.C., Babylon fell. Darius becomes the first emperor of Persia. In 538 B.C., Cyrus the Great returns Israel to their land. He gives them back the vessels from the temple. He gives them money and resources to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Ezra the prophet leaves and takes people from Israel back to Jerusalem. And so God does answer Daniel's prayer. Actually, quite a year later, Israel is returned back to their land. There's a kind of a migration back to the promised land, a migration back to Jerusalem. God promised to restore his people. There was judgment. God judged his people. He promised he was going to judge them if they worship other gods, if they worshiped idols, if they did not listen to God's word, they would be judged, which they were, but then they were restored. There was a promise of restoration. We read that in our assurance of grace, the restoration of God, that God promises redemption. God promises salvation. Jeremiah 33 through 4, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of that captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. So this is before the judgment. God promises them that while they'll be judged, that they will be restored, that they will be saved, that they will be returned and saved from far away. They will be given back land. They'll, be, they'll, have, they'll, be, they'll return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. 
So he turns his faith to the Lord. We see this in, in verse, verse 3 of Daniel 9, that, that then I turn my face to the Lord God. So we see him turning to God. He is desperate. He's wanting to return. He wants his people to re- return back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And his grounding for his prayer is in the character of God. It's not in political alliances. It's not in a new empire. It's in the character of God. I turn my faith to the Lord God, not to Cyrus, not to Darius, not to the Persians, but to the Lord God. Because he's the one really in control. He is the one behind all of these things. He even starts his prayer with the character of God, the great and awesome God. Verse 4, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, grounding our prayers in the character of God. He's, we, we should ground all of our prayers in the character of God. If we're not grounding our prayers in the character of God, then we are not anchoring ourselves in the true power and the true hope that we have in God's character, that God is great, He is awesome, and He keeps His covenant, He keeps His promises, and He is full of steadfast love and mercy. He never changes. God never changes. He's always good. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the age began. Numbers 23-19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God will always fulfill his promises. So when we pray, we pray to the one who will never change. He is always good. Righteousness belongs to God. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. This is the grounding of Daniel's prayer. He knows who God is. He knows he's full of righteousness. He knows he's full of mercy. He knows this. He knows he's full of forgiveness. Therefore, he is praying to one he knows can restore his people. He's confident in this. But I love how Daniel, throughout this prayer, does not... Uh, He's not shy, and he doesn't uh, turn away from the the elephant in the room, which is Israel's sin, the condition of Israel. And I love how Daniel includes himself in this. He's a part of the people. He's a leader of Israel, but he's a part of these people. He understands that his own sin causes him to be worthy of judgment before God. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules, he says. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. We have rebelled against God and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And God promised that he would judge them for their sins. He has confirmed his word that he will bring great calamity on Israel for their sins. But God has a response of grace. Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city of Jerusalem. Listen to the prayers of your servant. And and so he prays, what is your promises, God? What is your will and your purpose? And his will and his purpose is to show Israel grace, to show Israel mercy. And it's not because of their righteousness. Daniel even says it's not because of our righteousness that we deserve this, but it's by your great mercy that you will save us. Not because it's something we've done, but because of your character and who you are, because of your promises, we know that you will restore us. And that's what he prays to God. For the sake of his name, Daniel says, for the sake of your name, God, pay attention and act. Delay not. The city called by your name. Restore the city of Jerusalem because it carries your name. Uh, Restore your people because we carry your name. Don't let our sinfulness bring you shame. Don't let our sinfulness bring you not the glory you deserve. Restore us, Lord. Restore your people. Restore your city. 
And the, I think the way that we can kind of apply this is that we don't ask this way, do we? We don't pray this way. Uh, James 4, 2 through 3, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We do not ask because we do not have faith. We don't ask God for things because we don't have faith that he can actually uh, give us those things, that he's weak, that he's a weak God or he's not a very good God. Therefore, we bring his character under, under judgment or we bring his actual his identity, his actual character under judgment. We say that you're not good enough to provide for me. Cain did not trust the words of God. What did God say to Cain? If you do well, will you not accept? Cain didn't listen. God didn't, Cain didn't listen to the words of God. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't ask. And so therefore he did not receive. Instead he murdered. He coveted what he did not have. And so he murdered. He didn't ask God for the things of his heart. Do we not do the same? Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That is faith. Yes, we, we, don't, we don't see God in front of us. We, we can't just say to a, to a body in front of us, hey, I need this, and then they give it to us. We have to pray in faith that God will provide because of His character and His promises. Matthew 7, 7-10, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Who ask him? The issue with us, and we don't ask because I think the issue is, is we don't think God is as great as he is. The issue is we don't think he's as good as he truly is. That he's a weak God. That he promises stuff he can actually deliver on. We complain, we grumble, and we are frustrated because we don't ask. Ask God because he is eager to answer. And we get to the second point that God is eager to answer. This next section starting in verse 20. While Daniel is praying, God responds. Isn't that fascinating? I love the word. While I was speaking and praying, God sent Gabriel. God answered Daniel's prayer before he was done praying it. God is very eager to answer. There's a story. If you ever read the book, um, The Life of George Mueller, I would really encourage you to buy it. Uh, it's a really enjoyable read. You'll enjoy reading it. It's not like some boring book on history. It's, a, it's an interesting person who, who in, in, in the 19th century, uh, established orphanages in England, and thousands upon thousands of children were taken care of and, and fed and sheltered during the 19th century because of Mueller. And Mueller never asked for a dime of money. He just prayed. And there's a story, it's a, a kind of a cool little story that, and he didn't ever want the children to ever notice that they were lacking anything. Like, he didn't want the children to go, oh, we don't have any bread. What are we going to do, George? Like, they didn't, he never wanted the children to ever have that feeling. And so one day, the, there, wasn't enough, there wasn't enough milk for the children's breakfast. So Mueller prayed. Before, before the breakfast was over, a milkman broke his car. His truck broke down outside not his truck, but his his uh, his his uh, his horse and buggy, right? And, and and it broke down right in front of the orphanage. And it, obviously, he couldn't 
take the milk where to deliver it because there was no way to get there. So the milk was going to go spoil. So he just gave the milk to the children. They had milk that day. God answered their prayer while he prayed it. Milk was provided for George Mueller and the children. God is eager to answer. The Spirit intercedes for us in our prayers. We see this in Romans 8, 26 through 27. God knows our heart. God searches our heart. Hebrews 4, 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is always listening. God is there. He hears the thoughts and feelings of our hearts. God is always present. We always tell our daughter, God is always present. He's always with you while you're sleeping and you're scared. God is with you. God is present everywhere. He's not not some old man in the sky who knows nothing about what's going on on his creation or on his planet. He knows everything. He's always present. He knows our hearts. He's not far from us, but desires to draw near to us. He knows before we even say a word. I love this little, this little passage, this little, this little statement here that uh, Gabriel says to, to Daniel in verse th- 23. You are greatly loved. What a great little, little sentence. For you, Daniel, are greatly loved. You are loved. Da- Gabriel's not saying, Daniel, you're perfect. Daniel, you deserve this. All he says is, you are greatly loved. Your Father in heaven greatly loves you. Obviously, he's eager to answer. Obviously, he's eager to respond to your prayer. God gives good things to those who ask. The last point is the greater promise. We get to this weird section in 24. We get this 70 weeks. What does that mean? Does that mean 70 weeks? What it is is 70 years, 70 sets of seven years. Okay? Seven sets of, so basically it's 490 years. Kind of like, why didn't I just put 490 years? That's a great question. Um, but weeks is seven, and so seven sets of seven is 490 years. And, and, and so a lot of people have interpreted this as saying, well, that's when, uh, that's the, 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 talking about the seven-year tribulation and the end times and the Antichrist and all these different things. Reading this passage this week over and over, I, didn't, I don't see that at all. So quickly after we see that, you see that um, he says in the same verse in 24, to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to sell both vision and profit, profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. Okay, that's a key point here, right? The anointed one. That should ring a lot of bells in your head. What, all right, the anointed one. Who could that possibly be? The Bible is littered with this phrase, the anointed one, the Messiah, right? This is talking about Jesus Christ. That we're talking about like the Persian Empire. Jesus is not even anywhere near. The Roman Empire is not even on the, on, the, on, the, on the train yet. The Greek Empire hasn't even come yet. Alexander the Great hasn't even come yet. We're talking about 539 B.C. Jesus didn't come for another 500 years plus that. But what Daniel is being told here is as he prays about the restoration of his people, the answer that he gives is, yes, I'm going to restore you to the land, but I'm going to do far more than that. I'm going to bring it into sin. I'm going to bring it into transgressions. I'm going to bring it into iniquities. I'm going to bring everlasting, what does he say here? He says, I'm going to bring everlasting righteousness. I'm going to fulfill the visions that I've already given you, and I'm going to fulfill the, the, the teachings of the prophets. I'm going to anoint a more holier place than even the temple itself. 
is what he's actually promising here. And so what we see here is that Jesus is being promised to Daniel. And, da- and, and Jesus, the Messiah, is being promised to Israel. Even when it talks about an anoint, anoint, a most holy place, that should ring some bells as well. The Holy of Holies in the temple, in the tabernacle, where only the priest, the high priest, would go once a year to actually offer sacrifice, to offer atonement for the sins of the people. Christ will be a more, a greater anointed, most holy place. That when Christ is baptized, we see an anointing. That in Christ's body, you see a moving, walking, talking temple of the Lord. That God dwells bodily in the Son of God. That is what Daniel is being told by Gabriel. That Jesus, the Messiah, will be a better Passover lamb. He will take away the sins of the world. He will break down the veil that separated the world from a holy God. He will give access to sinners the most holy place. Do you realize that you have access to the throne room of God? Because you're a follower of Jesus. That, that, that almost should like totally blow your mind why we don't pray more. Like you get access to the throne room of God. Why would you not pray to God? I mean, I, that, is, that is such a conviction on me. It should encourage us to always be in prayer. Because God hears us. God answers us. We don't have to I, I send a, holy, a, a priest into the throne room of God. So it talks about these 62 weeks and the 70th week, anointed one is coming. We see Jesus is coming. He is the suffering servant. We, see, we preach that in Isaiah 53, that he is coming. Uh, he will lay down his life. He will be a, one who will be uh, afflicted for our iniquities. He will be killed for our iniquities. Daniel chapter 7, he is the son of man. He is the one that, the, that he will establish the, an everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom. But even... Even in this passage, we even go beyond Jesus and his death and resurrection. When we see that there's going to be destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, we see Titus, the Roman general, who in 70 AD came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple of Herod. And that's when all the Israelites, all the Jews were dispersed around the world. And that's when you get Germany and the Holocaust. It wasn't until 1948 that Israel actually, the Jews came back to the land. This is the moment. And Daniel's even given this vision that, yeah, anointed one's coming, but you will reject him, and God will judge you again, and you will be dispersed for even longer time. God is fulfilling his promises to, 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 his, to Abraham. He's, he's answering his promises to, to um, um, Daniel through this uh, vision that God will save his people. He will, make the, he will make his people a blessing amongst the nations. This is the greater promise. This is far greater than just bringing you back to the land. There's a greater promise that is coming. I'm going to kind of skip down here uh, to what, what has God promised his church. So, okay, this is great for Daniel. Daniel is praying promises back to God. But what are we promised? What does the New Testament promise us as his church, as followers of Christ? And I have plenty of verses I could read. I have tons listed. I'm not going to read them all. But there's so many that are littered throughout the Bible on what God promises to you that, you, that we rarely ever pray back to God. Why would we not pray the promises of God knowing that he will fulfill them? And that will bring us encouragement on our life. Even in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth 
comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as the sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. Basically, Paul is saying that those who are followers of Christ will receive resurrection of their actual body. Hence why, if you're suffering in this present time, it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we should pray for courage. We should pray for perseverance, knowing that God's already promised to resurrect our actual bodies. Like, that's a prayer we should pray. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He is going, He's already predestined it. He has elected you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Then why would you not pray that? If God's already basically said, I've already ordained it, it's going to happen, you will be conformed to the image of My Son, it will happen. Why would we not pray to be encouraged by that truth? Ephesians 2, 5 through 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be. Am I right that already? Uh, Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're an heir. So therefore, you should pray. Like, I'm really struggling with stuff. I'm struggling in my finances. I'm struggling understanding what your plan is for me. And you go, wait a second. In Galatians 4, 7, it says, I'm an heir of God. I'm a son of God. Why would I not pray knowing that truth? Philippians 1.6, And I'm sure of this, that he began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring you to completion. It's a promise. God is confirming it. Philippians 1.20, and this is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying that my life will be an honor to God. It is a promise that even if I die, it's a gain. That's a promise. There's so many more. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. For then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more, do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Like That's what he promises. This is God's will. He is he is all about this. This is his mission. This is his, his will, his purpose, is that you will be sanctified. There's no choice. You have no decision-making in this whatsoever. It will happen. Why would you not pray it? What does that even mean to be, to be sanctified, to, be a, to abstain from sexual immorality? That each one of you will know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. You don't know God, that no one should regress and wrong his brother in the matter. He keeps going on and on and on. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 3-11. The divine power has been granted to you in all things. The qualities of godliness has been given to you. You're partakers of the divine nature. He's given us these qualities of faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. These are the things that God gives. He promises them to you. Why would you not take it? Why would I not take it? 
James 1.5, you like any wisdom? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And on and on and on and on and on throughout the Bible, promises that God has said to his people, to his church, that he will do. He will fulfill. God is not a liar. God does not change. He will not say something, oh, well, they're just not right. Or ah, something's wrong. I don't really feel like it today, or they're just, I just don't, you know, I'm just not feeling it to do anything. God says it, it will happen. Why would we not pray it as Daniel prayed? God, these are your promises. For your name's sake, fulfill your promises, Lord. Fulfill your promises. I just want to say this last thing here, and um, we've kind of done a bad job. I've done a bad job of this and leading this, but we had this great idea to pray every day at 4.12 p.m., And I think we need to bring that back. And the reason why is because I think God, as we've stated, has promised a lot of things. And I think we need to stop figuring out what to pray about and just pray the promises of God back to God. So I'm going to, you can get your phone out right now if you'll forget, but to set an alarm on your phone for 4.12 p.m. If you're like one of those people who work at that time, like, I'm not telling you to stop working and getting, and getting fired by your boss, but just set a reminder later on in the day to pray. And just pray for five minutes. If you cannot, you know, just pray for yourself, pray for others, for Redeemer, for the gospel to be proclaimed to the nations. And use the passage. Use the passages that I gave you. There's far many more passages that you can read back to God. Like, things that you need to pray back to God about yourself. I'm not telling you to totally ignore yourself and not pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray for the church. Pray that the gospel will go across the city and in the world. But God, pray that God's promises would be fulfilled. Pray that he would fulfill, as, as Peter says, that the divine nature would be something that would be in you. The qualities of God would be in you. Pray that God would promises will be fulfilled. Let's see what God does. Like, after a month, if we prayed like this, what would God do? I mean, Daniel got his prayer answered eagerly, immediately. What, if, what would happen to the group of people in this room if we started praying regularly that God's promises would be fulfilled in our actual life? Let's just see what happens. You know, I'm not, I'm not really prone to test God, but if God states it, it will happen. So I am totally confident saying after a month of praying like this that God will probably do extraordinary things in our lives and amongst each other if we just prayed the promises of God back to him. He greatly loves you and me and he's eager to fulfill his promises. Let's pray.